said, I think I said to somebody earlier, if you have your Awana vest, you're going to get the Memorial Day pen for coming here on Memorial Day weekend to listen to the restoration and exile period. It's, it's, there's there's got to be something for that. So, uh, looks like we got a couple more people joining us. Did anybody have any big Memorial Day like pool plans or anything like that that were shattered? No? This is normally like the big opening weekend of the pool. So. I just saw another car or two drive in, so we'll give just, a, just another minute. Y'all can talk amongst yourselves. All right, well, <clears throat> let me set us up a little bit. I want to make sure that we are tracking with where we are in the history of the Old Testament. And remember, we're finishing the history this week. Uh, the history portion will be done as of... Uh, this, this month, so I've got there in the introduction to the 12 historical books, uh, we have the, the confederacy of 12 independent tribes, so that was Joshua and Judges and Ruth, and then we have the monarchy united and divided, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and then we have the return from captivity. And so Old Testament history comes to a close with the book of Nehemiah. Now, obviously, there's more books after that, but everything uh, from that point forward fits somewhere within uh, Genesis to Nehemiah, okay? And the book of Esther falls within the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as well, okay? And then I have the overview of the Old Testament history there so far, uh, universal dealings, the patriarchs, Israel becomes a nation, conquest and division, the period of the judges, the united monarchy, the divided monarchy, and then we've arrived at the exile and restoration. So I have there technically the exile period deals with the history of Israel during the 70-year captivity in Babylon, and the restoration period describes the dealings of God with Israel after the Babylonian exile of 70 years. Okay, so Here's a little something that I have found helpful uh, to think about the exile and the return from exile. So Israel leaves the land. The people of, the people of Israel, the, either the family or the nation, they leave the land twice in the history of the Old Testament that we cover, okay? So where do they go to the first time? 
when they, when they leave the land? Egypt. All right. It's not a trick question. All right. So they go to Egypt the first time. Where do they go the second time? Babylon. Yeah. Slash Assyria. All right. Uh, both times, God sends a teenager ahead, right? Who does he send the first time? Joseph. Owen, Owen's not here tonight, so we're going to have to actually answer. Um, and, and who does he send ahead to, to Babylon? Daniel. Daniel, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. How does God bring them back out of Egypt? Through Moses. And I'll, I'll, I'll stop asking questions at this point. He uses... Um, he uses miracles, okay? So the return, the return from Egypt back to the land is filled with all kinds of amazing miracles, right? The parting of the Red Sea, the plagues, um, all the things that happen in the wilderness wanderings, right? Very, very miraculous, okay? God brings the people back from Babylonia, Babylon and Assyria, I would say, through providence, and I think, so I, I feel like that this is a portion of Scripture that probably you don't know as much about, okay? I mean, maybe you do, maybe you're like an expert in the, you know, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, you know, Babylonian captivity and, and return. But a lot of people, I would say, I mean, even in like Old Testament, you know, survey classes that are surveying the history of Israel, you know, you get to, the, you get to this portion and you're just out of time, so the professor gives you a couple of weeks on this and, and keeps moving, right? Um, so, so this is probably an area that you may not be as familiar with, um, but God very much brings them back, uh, not by miraculous means, by, but by providential means. Okay, so here's, here's how I have, this is very helpful, uh, I learned this in my, my younger days, and I've communicated it to any of the kids who have sat through any of my um, school classes. You guys already know this, so just, you know, keep your mouth shut. But, uh, okay, so what is the difference between miracle and providence? All right, so let's, let's set this up. What is the difference between miracle and providence? Okay, so if I am driving to Walmart later on, I'm going to go to Walmart because, you know, we're all going to Walmart now. And uh, I, um, there's, a, there's a crowded parking lot at Walmart, but I'm in a big hurry because I have to get something uh, to take home, and there's nowhere to park. Um, so I just pray, and I like, I'm like, kids, you guys got to pray. We need a parking lot. We need a parking place really close up to the door. And all of a sudden, uh, a car right on the front row backs out, and I'm like, that's a miracle, right? No, that is not a miracle. That is providence. Okay, now, if I am driving into the parking lot at Walmart and it's very crowded and I say, kids, I need you to pray that we would have a parking place. And so we all start to pray. And if one of the cars right on the front row suddenly levitates, out of that spot and moves to the very back of the parking lot and sets down over there, that, my friends, is a miracle. 
all right? Now, I would say that we get pretty excited about miracle, right? And it's, so, the, so miracle is when God suspends the natural order of things in order to accomplish something, right? So something happens, and it's, it's obvious that the supernatural has invaded the natural. That's, that's the miracle. Providence, on the other hand, it's not as obvious. You know, so, so God, um, God in, in ways unseen, works to accomplish his purposes, but it's not an obvious intervention of the supernatural, all right? So, the return from Egypt to, to, the, to Canaan is really great because God does all of these supernatural things, and I think that the, the process of restoration coming out of Babylon doesn't seem quite as impressive to us because God orchestrates it through providential means, all right? But, I mean, the fact that all of us are here tonight, the fact that we were born in the time that we are born in, that is all God's providence. He has orchestrated every aspect of that. We won't spend a lot of time with the book of Esther tonight, but the book of Esther is generally considered an illustration of God's providence because the entire book, if you're familiar with it, turns on the fact that there's a king who can't sleep one night, and so what do you do when you can't sleep? You ask for your servants to bring you a book of history, right, because that's really boring, all right, and he starts reading through some history that's been written down, and he realizes that Mordecai one time did something really great for him and did not get rewarded for it, right? And so he says, let's, let's talk to Haman and let's ask Haman what I should do for somebody who I want to honor. And of course, Haman thinks, well, he's talking about me. So he says, I think you should get a horse and a, and a guy and you should put the guy you want to honor on the horse and you should have walk through the city and you should say, this is what the king does to those whom he wishes to honor. And then the king says, oh, okay, would you go do that for Mordecai, please, right? Which is all God's providence. That is God's providence. God is allowing normal means to accomplish his purposes, okay? So, so we're, we're talking about two different um, returns. We're talking about two different times that God brings the people. How in the world is he going to get his people back to the land? One time he does it miraculously. This time he does it providentially, all right? So that's, that's just, I think, a helpful way of understanding this. So I've got there the content of the exile and restoration period. By the way, I was going to say this. This is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to talk about the restoration period, which is Ezra and Nehemiah. We probably won't spend, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, we're not going to spend any time with Esther. Um, And then we're going to jump then, because we read Job this past semester as well. Okay, so we'll probably spend a good bit of our time together in the book of Job, because Job is also a very difficult book to understand. So I kind of want to try to give you a, a layout of what's going on in the book of Job. Okay, so let's, let's just talk about the period of the exile, and, and if you'll remember, the captivity took place in three stages. Stage one in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he takes some of the leading uh, nobles of the city of Jerusalem, carries them off. That's when Daniel goes to Babylon, okay, and then stage two in 597 BC, 
Jehoiakim rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. He comes and attacks Jerusalem, carries off 10,000 captives to Babylon. That's when Ezekiel goes to Babylon. And then stage 3, 586 B.C., King Zedekiah ignores the warnings of Jeremiah and plots against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar returns. He lays siege against Jerusalem and captures it. He burns the city, and only a very tiny remnant of the Jews is left, including Jeremiah. All right? We'll we'll get to Daniel in a, a couple of months, but interestingly, after 70 years, Daniel begins to pray, praying. Uh, he's, he's been reading his Bible, and he's been reading the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote down in Jeremiah chapter 25 that there would be 70 years of captivity, and Daniel looks at his watch, and he realizes that it's been 70 years. We talked this morning about praying according to God's promises. So God has promised that he's going to bring Israel back in 70 years. Daniel notices that, and Daniel says, hey, Lord, it's been 70 years. It's time for you to bring your people back from captivity, and that's what God does. So after 70 years, God brings the people back. Um, he, He took them away in Babylon, but by the time it's time for them to come back, uh, it's, the, the, the Persian Empire is, is ruling under Cyrus. So Cyrus is the Persian Empire who issues a decree in 538 um, that the Jews are going to be able to go back to the land of Israel. All right, and so what we're going to look at is there are three returns. So just like there's three stages of the exile... There's three returns. There's return number one, which is under uh, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. (laughs) Yeah, Zerubbabel. Zerub. I don't know. Um, And then return number two, uh, or section number two, I'll say. I'll talk about that in a minute. Just kind of, kind of led by Ezra, and then. Return isn't a great word, but I'm going to go with it for a moment. Return number three with Nehemiah. Okay, that's, all right, and so this is contained in the book of Ezra. We're going to see, gosh, my writing is terrible. I'm so sorry. And then this one is in the book of Nehemiah. All right. I don't even know if that's helpful, but... um, That's what we're going to look at tonight. So, let me also say this, number four, page four there. There are three historical books which were written after the exile and during the restoration. So we've got Ezra, like I say there, chapters one through six narrate the first stage of the restoration when Zerubbabel returns with 50,000 Jews. Chapters seven through 10 record the second stage of the restoration when Ezra returned with about 2,000 Jews to restore pure worship in the temple. Uh, So that's Ezra, and then Nehemiah records the third stage of the restoration when Nehemiah returns to rebuild the walls and to re-inhabit the city of Jerusalem. Um, I'll tell you this. I don't love these notes. So I, I, rather than dividing it up into return one, two, and three, 
I would rather talk about it in terms of, of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, because those are the three really important people that we're talking about here. So Zerubbabel is the one, oh, by the way, Zerubbabel means born in Babylon, okay? So he represents this like different generation of Jews who have been born in Babylon and now they are returning back to the land. And that's going to be very important because when they build the temple, there's going to be a group of Jews who are older who remember the old temple, and then there's going to be this group of Jews who are younger who remember the, ute, the new, who are excited about the new temple, and so all the people who are excited about the rebuild temple are going to be cheering because they're excited, and all the, the people who remember the old temple are going to be crying because it's a far cry because of, of, from what it was before Nebuchadnezzar uh, took them into exile, okay? So Zerubbabel brings them back the first. He's the first, um, the, brings the first group back, and his job then is to rebuild the temple, all right? And that's, that's contained there in Ezra um, verses, uh, chapters 1 through 6. So Ezra will actually write in his book, he writes history for the first six um, chapters, and then in 7 through 10, he writes biography because he talks about his own experience. But Zerubbabel comes back. His job is to build the temple, uh, which he does to, to a, a greater or lesser degree. And then Ezra returns with the second group, and Ezra's goal then is to restore the temple worship. Okay, so that's what he's doing. Okay, so it's interesting because with each of these guys, and I think there's a reason for this, but with each of these guys, there's a sense of like, we're doing this important thing, and then if you read it, if you remember, there's some strange things that happen kind of at the end of each one of these sections. So Zerubbabel, he, he builds the temple, and uh, everybody gets the temple going, but then he has this weird thing where, like, I don't know if you remember it, but, like, a bunch of people from around Jerusalem, like, come, and they say, we want to help, and there's kind of a conflict, and Zerubbabel is like, you're not allowed to help. You're not, you're not pure enough to help, okay? So that happens in this first section, and then Ezra comes, and Ezra's goal is to restore the, the temple worship, okay? So he reads the book of the law, and he, he tries to get everybody back into a place where they're like ceremonially clean and ready to start worshiping God in the temple again. Um, but then they find out that so many of the Jews who have come back to the land have intermarried with the people of the land. The very, very strange section at the end of Ezra, where Ezra gets really upset with them and he commands them to divorce their wives and to, to send the wives and the, the children away, okay? So weird section here where, where Zerubbabel won't let other people help build the temple. Weird section here where Ezra says, all of you people who married wives from the, 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 the land here, you have to divorce your wives and you have to send away your children. All right, so then Nehemiah shows up on the scene and Nehemiah is going to rebuild the walls around the temple, and so uh, around the city. And so he starts building the walls that they have some, some difficulty with, with a guy named Sanballat and another guy named Tobiah who wants to stop the work, but they manage to get the work going. And so finally, in Nehemiah, they, um, 
they, they, they get the, the wall built, and so they restore um, the, the temple worship, and they have a, a celebration of the Feast of Booths, and they, they read the, the Torah, and everybody responds, and everybody is excited, but then at the end, Nehemiah basically finds out that the, 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 the temple is falling into disrepair, and people are working on the Sabbath, <laughs> and they're not taking care of the wall, and then he goes around, and he starts, like, hitting people and pulling out their hair and saying, you guys aren't doing what I told you to do, and sort of the end of Nehemiah is sort of this, like, I did the best I could, God. Um, it just, you know, the people are, are difficult, all right? So, what, what, what do we do with all of that? Like, so, how, what do we do with the fact that, like, God brings all the people back and they make this, like, good attempt, I'll tell you what I think. What I think is going on here is I think that God, he is bringing them back to the land, he is fulfilling his promise, but I think what's evident, some people want to say, God made promises to Israel, he took them out of the land, but he said he was going to bring them back to the land, and he said that he was going to give them a temple, and he said that he was going to give them a ruler, and all of that happened right here, in this return. And, and I don't think anything about this return indicates to me that this is the return and the salvation and the revival of God's people that God is talking about because the, the temple worship is not what it should be. The hearts of the people are not what it should be. In, in, in the promises about the final kingdom and the final existence of Israel, there's not a wall there's, there's not conflict. The nations come into Israel to worship. They don't go against Israel to fight against them. So, so I think what we have here is God, you know, sending these rulers by pagan kings to accomplish these things in the land, to bring the people back to the land, but also making clear to us this is not his ultimate purpose. This is not the big return. This is not Messiah coming and setting up his temple. This is not the, 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 the God dwelling with man like has been promised to us, okay? So that's, that's sort of a big picture view of what I think is going on there in Ezra and Nehemiah. So any questions or observations about any of that? I know I just threw a lot at you. I'm the worst at asking good questions. I realize that. Nobody wants me leading their small group. When nobody else talks, I talk, like I'm doing right now. Yes. Yes, yes. So we'll, we'll look at so we will be reading in the future, and I, by the way, I think some of those, some of those prophets um, are, very, are actually quite interesting, but over the next couple of months, we'll be reading some of the prophets that are, are writing and, and speaking during this time, uh, and we'll talk, we'll talk about that in just a second. Yeah, okay, so that's, that. so, all right, think, so think about it this way. So there were prophets who were prophesying 
before the exile. Okay, so there were prophets like Isaiah who was prophesying to the king. And Isaiah's message was like, you guys need to stop acting like this or God is going to exile you. And then eventually it becomes, you guys, it's too late. God is going to send a nation that is going to take you into a distant land. But Isaiah, over and over again, I I read one of those passages this morning from Isaiah chapter 11. Over and over again, Isaiah is saying, but not all hope is lost because there is this glorious future for the people of Israel. There is this Messiah who's going to come. There's this king who's going to come, and he's going to reign in righteousness, and he's going to be the little shoot from the stump of Jesse. And, and those, those promises that talk about, and we'll get there in Isaiah, that, you know, the Assyrian and the Egyptian will join arms and will walk on this highway into Israel to worship God together with Israel, and Egypt and Assyria and Israel will all worship God together. So, yeah, the point is, these promises that were contained in the prophets— that God has a glorious future from Israel. So the the question is, how is it possible that God has let his people go into exile? Doesn't that let his name be defamed? And God is saying in the prophets, yes, it does, and I'm I'm, I'm okay with allowing my name to to be less than glorious in order that I can do this thing in my people, discipline them, and then I'm going to do something glorious in them in the future. The point being, what's happening in this return is not that glorious future. Okay, this is not the fulfillment of all of those promises. Those things are still to come. When we get to the prophet Daniel, We won't take time to go there tonight, but when we get to the prophet Daniel, Daniel especially gives us a picture of what the future is going to look at, this period of time that Daniel refers to as the time of the Gentiles, during which Israel is going to be consistently under the boot of Gentile government, still to this day, all right, but that there is this ultimate time when Israel will once again be, be a, a nation unto herself and, and will be ruled by the Messiah, who we know is, is King Jesus. All right? Any other questions? Yes. That's great. That's what I'm looking for. Seventy years. Okay, so you are talking about something else, but that's okay. So so Jeremiah, I'm almost positive it's Jeremiah 25, so I'm going to write it up here. If I'm wrong, then um, somebody can correct me. But Jeremiah speaks of a 70-year exile. Okay, so Jeremiah writing in Jerusalem, 
as Nebuchadnezzar is attacking, is saying, Israel is going to weigh, they're going to go away for a, for a period of 70 years of exile. Daniel then, 70 years later, is reading that scroll, and he's seeing that those 70 years are coming to an end. You're thinking about Daniel chapter 9, where there's the prophecy of the 70 weeks of years. And that would, that would be what I just said was this times of the Gentiles that we're still living in right now, 69 of which have already happened and one week of years is still to come in the future. So, so you're, that you're, you've got two, di- there's, I, and I, I can see how that's confusing, but there's a prophecy of a 70-year exile and then there's a prophecy of 70 weeks of years that's going to that's going to take place once they, as they come back into the land. Does that make sense? Does that clarify? We'll talk about Daniel later, right. Yes. Any other questions, or does that raise any questions, or do you think that all sounds crazy? Feel free to say that all sounds crazy. I understand. A lot of people think this does sound crazy. Like, is there a parallel between the fact that it's both 70? Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll just go with that. I don't know, but I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think anything's ever by accident. Have you guys ever noticed that... Um, I just recently, when we were reading through Judges, no, yes, Judges, Delilah uh, receives a certain amount of money, it's like 1,100 shekels for betraying Samson. And then in that passage, like in Judges, I think it's in chapter, uh, it, it's, it's the chapter where the, the, um, the young guy is going to set up his own, uh, he, he makes his own ephod. Anyway, his mother has 1,100 shekels, and he steals her 1,100 shekels. And it's the, same, it's the same amount that Delilah, and I was just like, I don't know, like maybe sometimes those things are just like coincidence, but it's like it's the Bible, God only has so much scroll, like how in the world, like that's, you know, is this a coincidence or is there some connection and we can ask him later. So I, I just, I somehow think that probably nothing is, nothing is by accident, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It's two different things. All right. Uh, anything else? Um, 
I do, uh, just for my purposes this morning, actually turn to, uh, if you have your Bible, I, I do, we mentioned, we were talking about prayer this morning, um, Nehemiah chapter 1, I mentioned it. Hold on. Remember how, I, so I said, you know, there are times when we sit in prayer before the Lord. Um, so Nehemiah has, has his long prayer there in chapter 1. Oh my goodness, my internet won't work. There it is. Yeah, verse 4. So, uh, so back it up. Nehemiah walks into the presence of the king. This is chapter 2, verse 2. Nehemiah, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, you weren't supposed to be sad in the presence of the king. The king could chop your head off if you were sad in his presence. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Uh, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, and I, I just, I love that. I love that little, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Like, yes, we should all spend time sitting or on our knees or prostrate before the Lord um, and, 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 and take our time to pray. But there are other times when the circumstances present themselves and we just have to take as much time as we have to pray to the God of heaven. And that's, that's what Nehemiah does there. And, and then he makes his request to the king that he would be able to go back and to build the, the walls in, in Jerusalem and, and the king grants his request. Um, so that I always, I just, that's, a, that's a part of Nehemiah that I always appreciate. If you've ever heard a sermon, a, a sermon series on Nehemiah, it's probably because there was some kind of building program in your church. Uh, it, people tend to preach Nehemiah when there's a building program. Uh, so, all right, real quick, and then I, I do want to move us on to the book of Job. Um, I have here for you um, books associated with the restoration, okay? So I have there beginning um, on my notes, it's page six. It says prophetic books associated with the restoration. So we have Jeremiah. I've already mentioned Jeremiah. Jeremiah is living in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar attacks, all right? And he's trying to warn. The thing that Jeremiah, we'll get to Jeremiah, but the thing that Jeremiah is saying over and over again is just submit to this. This is God's will. Let, you need to submit. If you submit to King Nebuchadnezzar, everything will be okay, and they refuse to submit. Some of them are trying to go down to Egypt to get help from Egypt. Some of them are just trying to run away, and all the people who try to go to Egypt or who try to run away, it doesn't go well for them. And so Jeremiah, that's what he's doing. He's trying to warn the people. Daniel, we've already talked about, he was taken captive in 605 BC, so he gets taken to Babylon, and he is writing during the exile period in Babylon, and then Ezekiel was taken captive in 597 BC, and his entire prophetic ministry 
is in Babylon. And we'll get to the book of Ezekiel, but I'm just trying to plug in the books, the, the, the prophetic books, into the historical situation, okay? So Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel are writing during the exile, and then you have the post-exilic prophets here. Haggai, um, he's calling them out because they're not working on the temple. Zechariah um, and Malachi. So they, uh, Malachi, you can see there, is a contemporary of Nehemiah and Ezra. Malachi ministers into the restoration community in Jerusalem, and he's ministering during a time of widespread discouragement and carelessness. And then Malachi is the final voice of the Old Testament. After Malachi finishes prophesying, there's 400 years of silence until the, the angel appears to uh, Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad in the temple. All right, so that, that will conclude our discussion of the, of the exile and the restoration period. Uh, any other final questions about that? All right, so I want us to turn to the book of Job. And so I think we will spend the remainder of our time uh, talking about the book of Job. So if you, had your, if you have your Bibles, you can just kind of keep, keep a finger in Job as we go along here. We're switching to the, the wisdom books. We're leaving the historic books of the Old Testament. We're switching over to a different section. I'll, I'll give a short introduction to the wisdom books next time we're together, and we'll, give, we'll talk a little bit about Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon at the beginning next time. But like I said, we're going to focus on Job. What do you... How do you tend to approach the, the, the book of Job? Just honestly. What, what do you guys think of the book of Job? Any thoughts? Did anybody, has, is anybody like, I think, you know, technically I think we've got like two more days left, three more days left if you're reading right on schedule. First two, go ahead. Difficult, Difficult. yeah. Miserable, fair. <laughs> oh, did you, I thought Gus said that. <laughs> I was like, wow, I didn't even know you were that far along. Um, uh, Owen, you, you, what, what do you think? Hard to understand, all right? First two chapters, good, right? Uh, third chapter, dark. And then pretty much chapters four all the way till God starts speaking. And you know what else I think is really hard about those middle chapters when his friends are speaking? Is they're saying a lot of things, and I'm like, well, I agree with that. But that's, I know that the, the friends of Job, that God doesn't like what they say. So I can't, like, quote this, right? I can't, like, you know, <laughs> send to my friends, oh, here was something really helpful that Eliphaz said that I was reading in my quiet time today because, you know, later on, God is like, those guys, they don't know what they're talking about, right? So it, it's really, really complicated. It's, it's a little hard to understand. I'll tell you, I had the opportunity um, to go uh, to, to Rochester, Minnesota, of all places, 
and to teach the book of Job for a week several years ago uh, at a church. Actually, my father-in-law double-booked himself, and he was supposed to be in Rochester and somewhere else at the same time, and he said, can you go to Rochester and teach on the book of Job? So I did a deep dive on the book of Job, and I went to Rochester, Minnesota, and I taught for a week on the book of Job. So these are the things that I've learned, okay? And so I want to take you through this today because I was helped by some of these things, and I hope you will be too. I, I don't, I, I'm going to tell you this, like when I read the book of Job today, I am not like, oh, I really get it now. All right, like I'm not like that. But I do think that I've learned some things that have helped me understand a little bit more about the book of Job. So we'll, we'll talk about these things for the, the time that we have left, okay? So first of all, when did Job live? All right, so many people believe, and I would believe, that Job is the first book of the Bible written down, all right? It's the earliest book. So Job took place before Moses lived, okay? So even though, like, some of the stuff in Genesis happened before Job, um, there's a good chance that the book of Job occurred and was written down before Moses was even born, and wrote what we know as the Pentateuch, okay? So one way or the other, there's a good chance that Job may be some of the earliest writings that we have. All right, so this is the other interesting thing about Job, I think. Job was probably a contemporary of Abraham, approximately, okay? Job probably lived approximately around 2000 BC. Okay, so this is entirely circumstantial, all right? But here, here are some of the evidence. The length of Job's life corresponds to the length of the patriarch's lives, okay? So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job would have been living around the same time. Job's wealth is reckoned in livestock. When it says that Job was a wealthy man, it talks about how much livestock he had. That's how Abraham was reckoned as a wealthy man. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans are mentioned as raiding the settlements of Job. Those are people who lived in the mid-second millennium BC. Job functions as a priest offering sacrifices for his family, okay? So after Moses and the writing down of Exodus, you didn't function as a priest for your family anymore because now there was a high, like it was actually wicked to function as your own high priest, okay, as your own priest. So Abraham is clearly right, uh, doing things before, um, and then also the book makes no reference to any of the elements of Mosaic legislation, all right? So um, there's, there's no mention of the law in the book of Job, all right? So circumstantial evidence that Job was contemporaneous with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Number two, where did Job live? He lived in the land of Uz, um, Uz was a real place. It appears in Genesis 10:23 as the name of Shem's grandson, the great-grandson of Noah. <laughs> so it was likely named after him. And it occupied the southern region around the Dead Sea, later known as Edom. All right, so one thing that is really important is that you need to know that Job was a real person who lived in real time in a real place. Okay, so Job is not the figment of of some imagination. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 14, refers to Daniel, Noah, and Job as 
exemplary righteous men, all right? So I don't know what you, if you have ever taken a, like, Bible as literature class, and you've ever been told Job wasn't really a, a, a good guy, it's just a, I mean, a real guy, it was, it's really just a long poem, and it's beautiful. No, we actually believe that Job um, was a real man. All right, third, what did Job know? All right, so this is a really interesting question, because we're, if Job was living contemporaneous with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then what we have here is evidence of other people who worshiped God, who worshiped the true God, even as Abraham was uh, receiving his promises. So, okay, so like Melchizedek is the, the king of righteousness who lived in the land. He was a real righteous guy who worshiped God. So was Job. So um, <clears throat> what was civilization like in Job's day? Job was a chieftain of some sort, and he lived in considerable splendor and dignity, all right? It's interesting, like, rich people in the Bible would think that we live like kings, right? Like, rich people, like, the, 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 the things that they have as rich people, you know, they, they didn't have refrigerators. Like, you know, if you wanted meat that night, you killed the cow, and you cooked it, and you ate it. You know, they, 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 they were rich, but not in any way that we think of being rich, but Job was a, a man of considerable rich, uh, riches and dignity. Um, he, he frequently visits the city. He functions as a judge. Interestingly, in the book of Job, we read about mining operations, building, and ruined sepulchers. I think it's very interesting that there's talk of ruins, of ancient ruins. So if Job is living, let's say, sometime between the Tower of Babel after the flood and say, you know, Abraham, you know, or contemporaneous Abraham, there's been enough time between the flood and, and Job's day that entire civilizations have risen up in the, in the earth and been destroyed. And those ruins are evident, okay, to the people who live at that time. All right, so another thing here. All right, we believe in progressive revelation. All right, and what we mean is this. You, at any point in history, you were not responsible to know any more than God has revealed to you thus far, okay? So, in other words, <clears throat> we don't believe that people who lived in David's day had to believe in a crucified Messiah who had died for their sins, right? Because that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't been revealed. Okay, so, question. <clears throat> what would Job have known from God's revelation? What did Job know at that point? Global flood? Babel, yep, dispersion, dispersion of the, of the languages. I would say, I would say probably some oral record of Adam and his kin, and the, what happened with Adam and the serpent, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And, and remember, oral records, don't be bothered, like, you know, we can't remember anybody's phone number anymore, right? That's a huge problem. But they, oral records for them, that, the, like, don't think, ah, well, they might probably could have gotten some of that wrong. No, that's not the way it went. When you learned something in those days, you memorized all of it word for word exactly. All right, we talked about this way back when we talked about Moses 
writing the Pentateuch and those different sections, Moses takes those oral traditions that maybe have been composed into documents by that time and he brings them together. But there's no reason for us to think that maybe something got changed in the process. That's not the way it would have worked. Um, anything else? Yeah, so he's, he's, he's following along in those things that he has received thus far. And then... He knows about, about sacrifice. Yes, yes, he understands, he understands the need for some kind of sacrifice for sins, right? Uh, God does two things when Adam and Eve sin. He kills a lamb and he covers them. He kills an animal and he covers them. An animal had to die to provide a covering. So the people of that time understand that there needs to be a covering for the shame of sin. The one thing I would add is that possibly he's heard about a man named Abram and his family and his adventures and the things that are going on with him in the land. All right? Okay, number four. What is the theme and purpose of the book of Job? Okay, <clears throat> let me just say uh, a word about the theme of Job right here at the outset. Okay, so the theme of Job is God must be worshipped because he is God. It is the duty of man to worship simply because he is man. Okay, so in this, this gets to the whole breadth of the book where at the end of which God sort of says, where were you when I did all of these things? And, and Job kind of ends up saying, I, I've got no answer, okay? And so the, the theme of Job, God must be worshipped simply because he is God. It is the duty of man, the creature, to worship simply because he is man. The purpose of Job, then, is to cause man's faith to mature to the point that God is trusted and loved because of who he is rather than what he does, all right? And I'll throw you one more theme of Job that I learned in, in my study. This one's a little more shocking, and it may require a little more thinking. I would say it's, it still requires thinking on my part. Uh, but I think that another theme of Job is this is how God treats his friends. All right? Job is evidence of how God treats his friends. And, and, and in some ways, Job sort of flips. This, is, this, is, this gets into a little bit of, I think, where the, the friends go wrong. The friends are convinced, right, that Job has done something sinful. There must be something you've done that has caused God to treat you like this, because in their world, they have no room for righteous suffering. That in their world, if you do good, you are blessed. If you do bad, you are cursed. Job, you seem to be cursed. You must have done bad things, all right? They have no category for righteous suffering. And I like to point out at this point, Job's friends would have no category for the cross, because in the cross, we have the epitome of a righteous sufferer, 
all right? And so going back to it then, this is how God treats his friends. Brothers and sisters, I love you. Uh, I don't want to see any of you suffer. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to see my family suffer. But what is true is that the Bible consistently tells us that God brings suffering to our lives, and it's good because the suffering draws us closer to him. All right, so these are, these are the deep truths that we're learning, that we're, that we're going to see in the book of Job. Job is about how God treats his friends. So you can, if, if nothing else, you can write that down somewhere at the beginning of Job, and you can chew on that um, as, as you have your, your quiet times in the book of Job uh, over the, the weeks to come. Any questions or comments about any of that that I've, that I've just presented? Yes, Gus. Yes, the, the life of Mo- Because it's part of the wisdom literature. So, it's, so we're, not in, we're not in the history section anymore. Job is not, it's not a history sec, uh, book per se. It's a book of poetry. Do you guys understand too? This is, thank you, Gus. This is a nice segue. Uh, I, I will say this. Hebrew poetry. So we think of poetry right, as something that rhymes, right? I was a poet, and I didn't even know it, yeah? I, I, I only rhyme some of the time, all right? Well, that's how we, we think of poetry as, as and, and a lot to do with, like, meter and, and all of those kind of things. Hebrew poetry has a lot to do with, like, parallelism, like two things being put up against each other, two things that might be put up against each other um, in a way that they, 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 one thing exemplifies, one thing like makes the other greater, or one thing is contrasted with the other. Um, you know, seven things the Lord, six things the Lord hates, you know, seven things he abhors. That's how, how Hebrew poetry works. One thing I think is interesting, and I, I, have, I know about as much Hebrew as, as I can like just understand it a little bit, but there's, when you read the Bible and you see Hebrew poetry, it stands out because of the way it's written. So when you read Jonah, um, Jonah in the first section is, is, is writing an account of what's happening of him in the, 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 the ship, okay? And then he gets thrown out of the ship, and he gets swallowed by the fish, and then there's that, that like, hymn that, it's a poem. It's, the, it's what, what Jonah says from the belly of the fish is clearly written as poetry, all right? And then it goes back to the story, all right? And my point is just Hebrew poetry is such that it's, it's signified by how it's written, by the way that it's written down. I say all that to say, you know, some people will say, I think I, I said this before, but I'm going to say it again, you know, Genesis 1 and 2. We shouldn't take Genesis 1 and 2 uh, literally, because it's, it's poetic. It's not poetic. It's not. It, it's written as history, okay? Moses is writing history. Now, you can argue, if you want to, that Moses doesn't know what he's talking about, right? But you can't sit there and say that that is poetry, because it's not poetry, 
All right. So to answer your question, the reason that it's not part of the history section is because it is clearly a, a poetic document. All right. Great. All right. Let's get into the the the, the outline of the book. So there's the pre-dialogue section, chapters. 1 through 3, we were introduced to the man Job in, in verses 1 through 5. We see the demand of Satan in verse 6. Uh, verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was among them. All right? Um, at some point, the sons of God. So this gets into, Matt preached on this it's at one point. I don't know if y'all remember. He talked about this divine council. There was a guy by the name of Michael Heiser. He just recently died. And he's written a book called The Unseen Realm. If you're interested in the divine council, like 80% of that book is great. And 20% of that book, you're going to be like, what? But it's a very interesting book, okay? And Michael Heiser kind of popularize this notion that I think I agree with, that there is this, this divine council, this heavenly cabinet in the heaven, these sons of God, okay? So wherever you see sons of God, that's a euphemism for sort of these divine beings who seem to be around the throne. Psalm 89, 6 and 7 says, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. Okay, so God seems to, and I, I think this would still be true today, he, it, what, we, what we see in Job is that there are these divine beings who are around God. They are, they are other divine, they are not God. They are little g-gods at best, but they're, they're surrounding God and then the Satan uh, comes into that group. He comes in among them, uh, and, and Satan actually says there, he says, um, <clears throat> rather, let's see, God says to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. I think it's very interesting because don't you, we kind of think of this as like Satan came to God and was like, you know that guy Job over there? I want to take him down. That's not what happens at all. Satan comes in. God says, where you been? He says, I've been going around to and fro on the earth. And then God says, well, have you noticed my servant Job over there? He, he's, a, he's a righteous man. So the whole thing, the whole thing gets started because God points out Job to Satan, okay? Um, and then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put up a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has in is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. So Satan goes out, he takes away all of Job's prosperity, he takes away Job's children. Job does not curse God. Uh, there's another, um, there's another uh, interaction 
between Job and uh, between Satan and God, and, and God gives Satan permission to attack his health. He takes away his health, but he says you may not harm, you may not kill his body, okay? All right, here, here's, here's the thing, you guys. I, I think that what this shows us is that in our suffering, in the difficult things that we go through, there is far more at stake than we understand, okay? So, so consider this, when you're suffering, because, because God is saying, have at it, have at it, you, you have at my servant Job. And so, in a sense, all of heaven, the, the, the heavenly council, is watching to see what happens. And, and God's glory is at stake, not to put any pressure on you. But is it possible that in our suffering, that, that the accuser has come and said, have, have you considered my servant, or, or God has said, have you considered my servant, David Cleland? And, and Satan has said, uh, oh yeah, well, you know, let's, let's just see what happens if he has some hard times. And God says, okay. And, and so what if, there, what if, what if what's at stake in our suffering, brothers and sisters, is that God's glory is at stake and that God has said, you, you, may, you may have at him, but with these limitations, and, and that we're being, we're being tested, as it were, put through the fire so that we can put God's glory on display. You know, I always think, so like Job is like, you know, you've got the two chapters at the beginning and the one chapter at the end. So if you took out the middle, um, what is that, 39 chapters of Job, and you just had the, the first two chapters and the last chapter, you know, you would have a three-chapter book. You know, like, what if Ruth, what if the book of Ruth, you know how in Ruth, Naomi, you know, she's, she's away in, in the land of Moab, and her husband dies, and her sons die, and then she, she goes with Ruth back to, to um, Israel, and she's taken care. Like, what if, what if God came, what if God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Naomi? You know, what, what, if, what, if, what if in Ruth, we're just missing the middle part, right? Where all those things, where we don't get to see the things that are going on in heaven. Another thing to consider here is that at no point in this book does Job have any clue that any of that is taking place in heaven. He does not know about that. We know about that because we've read it. We know about that because we've heard it. Job does not know about it. Um, Job's reaction in, in verses 20 through 22, this is to the first group. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, no, I don't think, he, what, what was going on in heaven? Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, right. Yeah, but, I mean, is it possible, I mean, again, consider the amount of, of revelation that Job has. So Job doesn't have the book of Job, right? You have the book of Job. Like, he does, yes. So he knows, he knows there's an enemy, um, but I, I, I think that one of the reasons that his faithfulness is so exemplary is because he has, I mean, there's no matter what, he has a lot less revelation than you do. Like, there's no question about that. Yeah, right. he, you've, you've got 66 books of a Bible. He might have nine chapters, maybe, you know. So he's got a lot, more, a lot less revelation than you do, and all he's got is a promise of a redeemer, the understanding, perhaps, that there was a serpent in the garden, the flood and the, the retribution that God poured out. Um, another thing that I do think that it's helpful for us to separate. So first and foremost, we know that the suffering that comes into our lives, God allows it. Like, no questions. Like, that much we know. Now, to the extent to which wh what's going on in the heavens that he's, that's, that's causing, we don't know that. We can't say that. But we know that he allows it. Um, we also know that there are forces in this world that are trying to keep us from having a relationship with him, okay? And, and, and so somehow those two things are working. You know, God, you know, I think, it was, I think it's Martin Luther who said the devil is God's devil, you know? So those two things, you know, total, uh, these, these actors that are acting in, in their own will to try to tempt us, to try to move us away from the presence of God, and God is allowing that, you know? Um, so, I mean, that's, that's what we see here. That's what we see in the book of Job. And then I do think it would be helpful, even from what you're saying, you know, so we're talking about Job who hasn't sinned in any discernible way, but God is allowing him to be tried in order to, to perfect his faith or to draw him closer to a better understanding of him as separate from the difficulties that we may experience um, perhaps as discipline, you know, the, the, the Lord's chastening, the difficulties that he brings into our lives that aren't punishment per se, but they're ways of like our, like truly we have sinned, and God is using those things to bring us to the end of ourselves, you know, for the purpose of repentance. So I, I think there's, there's like in those things that you're mentioning, from my understanding, there would be some categories in there that, that, that we would want to think through. Does that make sense? Yeah. Holy, that's, a, that's another great, so, so um, Ashley just said that, you know, we have the, we have the Holy Spirit, so we actually, we, you know, the promise of the new covenant, we have the Holy Spirit, that's a very good point, like all of the, all of the assets that we have that Job didn't have that bring us a greater understanding of that. There is a difference, Job, where it does, he turns from Satan's path to 
Yes. Yes, that's right. Move with me forward to Job's three friends, because I think everybody is probably, you know, you understand sort of the basic story. You guys ever seen um, the, the Christian comedian Tim Hawkins? You know, I think he's funny. He, uh, I saw him do a bit where he said, you know, J- Satan, there's, there's like, the demons are like carrying out Satan's plans. And uh, because, you know, Job's wife famously comes to him and says, you know, all this is happening. You you need to curse God and die. And, uh, you know, so the demons are like, okay, uh, we've taken care of his children. We've taken care of his livestock. We've taken care of his servants. Um, Do you want us to to kill his wife? And and Satan goes, (laughs) no, let's leave her. Uh, I thought it was funny. I, I, you know, he does it better than I do. Um, Okay, Job's friends. Uh, so we have Eliphaz, this is in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Again, I'm, I'm trying to set this up for you here. Eliphaz, the, the, the Temanite, okay? Um, and then we have Bildad, the Shuite. Interestingly, Shua was one of Abraham's sons by his concubine Keturah, okay? So it could be that uh, Bildad is a descendant of Abraham through Shua, and then we have Zophar the Namathite. And Zophar, his name means young bird. So he's probably the youngest of the three. Okay, so I wanted to, I'll come back to, to Job 3, but let me say this. Beginning in Job 4, what we have in the book of Job are three cycles where Job's friends speak and Job responds. So you have uh, Eliphaz, you have Bildad, and you have Zophar. So Eliphaz speaks, Bildad speaks, Zophar speaks, and Job responds to each one three times, all right? So that is that middle section. That's what's going on. Three sets of three with a response from Job every time, all right? Um, okay, but first, look, look with me quickly at, at Job 3. This is Job's lament Okay, we talked about lament when we, we went through 2 Samuel in that first chapter there. David lamented over the death of Saul and Jonathan. Remember we said on um, Good, Good Friday, we looked at Isaiah 53, which is a lament written down from a, from a future perspective. So this is Job's lament, and, and, and I think that Job chapter 3 may be one of the deepest darkest chapters in the whole Bible, because there is almost nothing redeeming in that chapter. Um, He's not really speaking to anybody. This is the the conversations don't begin until chapter 4, Job's three friends. They're sitting, they're watching Job in his loneliness, and, and so they have to listen as he expresses his loneliness. And, and what, I, what I think we see in Job chapter 3 is that a believer may go through very deep darkness. Okay, so we know, we know that Job is a godly man. We know that he is a faithful man. We know that he has worshiped God. We know that he has not sinned. But what we see in chapter 3 is that Job goes through a time of deep darkness and despair, 
And I would say we know, because we've read the end of the book, that Job remains a believer throughout it, all right? And so what I learned from that is this. You can be a sincere believer today and go through a period of deep darkness. And there's no reason to believe that a person necessarily who's experiencing that has sinned or is somehow backslidden from the faith. All right? I, I, uh, I read a biography of William Wilberforce. Uh, you guys, William Wilberforce, um, he was a, a very committed, I don't know if you've heard of him, I hope you have, he was a committed believer. Um, his, his aunt and uncle had been saved under the ministry of George Whitfield, who had a great influence on him. He came to faith under John Newton. He was a, a, a member of parliament who was very influential in abolishing the slave trade in England. <clears throat> in, uh, and he, he used to, he had memorized Psalm 119, which is a very long psalm, 160, 179 verses, 170 verses, huh? Thank you. 176 verses in Psalm 119. And uh, he had memorized it and he used to recite it to himself and meditate it as he went back and forth to Parliament. Um, okay, so most of us know about all of his heroism. So here's something you may not have known about William Wilberforce. He had significant colon distress, could not see without great difficulty, had lung problems, ulcers, and a degenerative curvature of his spine. And early in his life, the doctors prescribed opium to help him cope with the pain, and over time, the effects of the drug wore him down. So again, here we have a man in William Wilberforce, and we've all heard the stories of his heroism, but most people don't know that the man suffered gratefully, painfully throughout his life. All right, so all of that to say, Job, William Wilberforce, others, maybe some of you in this room, we don't want to have a version of faith, we don't want to have a version of Christianity that is shallow and trite, because Job is a blameless man, but he does not live a life that is only blessed and happy, all right? And I think, so sometime when you have a chance, maybe you noticed it when you read through it, maybe later on tonight, go and just read Job chapter 3, and I think that Job 3 really expresses that darkness. All right, the dialogue, chapters 4 through 27, I'm, I'm coming to an end here, I promise. Um, a few things, just number one, the comforters are not impressed with Job, Bildad is the boldest. He says to Job, um, how long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? And I think he's speaking euphemistically there. I, I, think, that he's, I think he's using a, a euphemism for a strong wind. Um, so they're not being nice to each other. They're not being nice to Job. They're unimpressed. Eliphaz says in chapter 15, should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Uh, Zophar gets so bold in chapter 11 that he says he wishes God would speak and Job would shut up. Um, and of course, God eventually does speak, and it's not the, the response that Zophar is hoping for. I always like to say, I think this is right. I think, you know, you've probably heard this before, but Job's friends probably get, us, get it the most right when they were sitting with him and just being quiet. 
when they were just being present with him. Secondly, then, Job is not impressed with his comforters. He calls them miserable comforters in chapter 16. He calls them windbags. He says he wishes they would stop talking. And in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, he sarcastically says that they must be the only source of wisdom, and when they die, all wisdom will die with them. These are not people, by the way, who get <laughs> clearly, I mean, you know, we're very easily offended with one another these days. Like, I can't believe, like, they keep talking as long as they do, because they're saying, like, really strong things to each other. And then third, God is not impressed with Job's comforters. Um, in verse, chapter 42, verse 7, uh, God says, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. He's saying, to, speaking to Eliphaz, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Um, the theology of Job's counselors, this is what they believe, okay? This is a theology of Job's counselors. Number one, God is absolutely in control. Number two, God is absolutely just and fair. <coughs> Therefore, he always punishes the wicked and blame and blesses the righteousness, always. And they would say, he can't do otherwise because God is always just, because rather, that would be unjust and unfair. Therefore, if you suffer, you must have sinned in some way, and you're being punished justly for that sin. And the opposite would also be true. If I'm blessed, I must be good, but they don't see any need to develop that point. All right, so again, just pressing on that point, Job's friends see no place for righteous suffering. And I, I would say it again, they would have no place for the cross. Job makes a, a final defense before his uh, comforters in chapters 27 and 28. He makes a final defense before God in verses chapters 29 and 31. And then Job is silent. And then we have this other speaker named Elihu, who goes on for, uh, from, from chapter 32 to 37, and, uh, and then God closes it out in chapter 38, reminds Job that he really doesn't know anything. Um, it's interesting to me, God, let me turn to the end, uh, the Lord this is in chapter 42, and with this will be done. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Um, verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female servants. And he had seven sons and three daughters. God doubles everything. He doubles the sheep, the camels, the yoke of oxen, and the female donkeys. But Job has the same number of children as he had the first time. I think that's an argument for the resurrection. I think that God doubles Job's offspring. So he had 10 who died. God gives him 10 more. All 20 of them are alive because of the resurrection. Um, and then in the land there was no woman so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among the brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and uh, his son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. 
It does not say that God healed his skin diseases. Uh, I, I, I think, that, I mean, maybe he did, but the text doesn't say that. You know, so is it possible that Job uh, continued to suffer with the physical diseases for the rest of his days? Um, I think is an interesting question. And then also, um, I just, I think it's interesting to think about the fact that the, the hurt of losing those first 10 children and of, you know, we, we tend to think, well, Job just lived a great life, you know, for the rest of the time, but obviously he had lost 10 children, he had lost all of the other members of his household, the servants and stuff like that. So, you know, if you take the, the servants who died, the children who died, and the fact that he, he possibly wasn't healed of the diseases, um, then, you know, you have a man who continues to live through suffering until he dies and, and uh, receives his, his glorified body. So, that I hope is helpful. All I'm I am not suggesting that that will help you understand the book of Job. I, I do hope that it's helpful for you to see how the book is laid out. I think probably the most helpful thing for me to see were those three cycles of discussions, of conversations with those three friends and how those make up the bulk of the middle of, of the book there. Um, and again, I, you know, I definitely wrestle. I think it's a problem with me. It's not a problem with the book, but I wrestle with the fact that so much of what they say I agree with, and I just, I don't always know what to do with that. So, um, yeah. Do you remember the name of the book, The Gospel According to Job? Is that the name of the book? Mike Mason? Gospel According to Job by Mike Mason. Yeah, I had a, I've, I've mentioned to you a mentor in Arlington Heights he was from England. His wife died while he was a pastor there. He taught me a lot about how to minister to people who were bereaved by just by like helping him, helping me be with him. But he recommended that book, The Gospel According to Job by Mike Mason. He said he was greatly helped by that book when his wife died. It's like a ton of just one or two page meditations on the book of Job. It's a very, very interesting, very helpful book. So you can write that down as a resource, and perhaps one day if you need it, I may remind you of it, and perhaps one day if I need it, you can remind me of it, because it is, it is a good book to recommend to people who are, are suffering, especially through uh, the loss of loved ones. So, all right, with that, uh, let, me, let me pray. We'll end with prayer, and uh, then we will commence. Next time, we'll do Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, but we'll, we'll, just like we did this, last, this time, we'll dig in on Isaiah for most of the time because the book of Isaiah is a lot of the month of May. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this. I pray that this quick overview of these sections of the Scripture have been helpful. Father, I pray that you will uh, help us as we read these things again to read them with fresh eyes. Father, once again, I want to lift up to you Eileen and uh, Stuart Smith as they're over at Memorial. Father, I pray that you would bring healing to her body for the surgery that she has had. I pray that you will bring comfort to her for the pain that she's experiencing. Father, I pray for Stuart that you will strengthen him. I pray that you will give him rest as he seeks to minister to his wife. Father, I pray that you would give them freedom to reach out to the body of Christ for the things that they need. And God, we ask most of all that you would bring her back to us quickly so that we can see her in fellowship with her 
once again. Uh, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good night.